Effie Zuroff is here. He is American-born, an Israeli historian, a Nazi hunter. He has played a key role in bringing indicted Nazi and fascist war criminals to trial. He is the head of Israel's office of the Wiesenthal Center. We have heard his name for decades associated with Nazi hunting and successful Nazi hunting. And he is here in our mobile studio at JM and the AM. A pleasure to welcome you to JM and the AM. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to start with this. Are you familiar with the movie Operation Finale? Haven't seen it yet. I've read, I've read quite a bit. It's supposed to come here in the next few weeks. And uh, I saw it the week it came out. Yeah. And I'm frankly curious. I don't even know if you or would know the answer to this. I'm curious uh, what happened to the people who were essentially the informants, essentially the people living in Argentina who discovered Eichmann there. Uh, in the movie, they're arrested, and I, I, I honestly, when it comes to film and reality, who knows what's really true. Um, but I was curious, because apparently it was uh, an elderly gentleman whose daughter was dating the son of Eichmann, and that's how the entire you know association uh, became... Uh, uh, became known. He transmitted a message to Israel. Right? It was it was actually right. Israel uh, that that started to move ahead on this. And uh, I was. But, but that message didn't prompt any action by Israel. They were ambivalent when they heard about that. Not ambivalent. Um, what the person who, in other words, that person, Luther Herman, right, Luther was Herman, actually right. a person of Jewish origin, had a Jewish father. He was blind. A blind man, right? And you're right. His daughter was dating Klaus. I think it was Klaus Eichmann, right. who, believe it or not, went under his father's real name. In other words, right. if not for that, it's not clear if Eichmann would have been found. Even though t- just not long ago it became clear that the both the German uh, Secret Service and the CIA knew where he was. But would not, co- would not cooperate with Israel? Or they were never no, asked? Israel, Israel had no idea, and Israel wasn't interested initially. And Basically, the person who you could say uh, really pushed Israel to do it is Fritz Bauer. Right. In other words, the German Which uh, isn't the Jewish the right. social democrat who escaped Germany in '33 went to Sweden, and uh, then came back to help build the new Germany. Right. In other words, um, not a Zionist, let's put it that way. Sure. <laughs> and uh, he was the one who sent the information to the Mossad. He was the one who later went to bang on the table and tell Israel to get off its right. hysteria. And to start acting. And to start acting, yeah. And yeah. Um, the, the whole operation, is the details of it. I saw the museum uh, presentation. They had a whole, uh, at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. The exhibition, I see, yeah. I've seen it, yeah. That is, yeah. I mean, just the details and everything that had to be done in order to to get that mission accomplished was... Remarkable. But I guess nothing the Israelis do should surprise us, huh? I wouldn't say that, but uh, <laughs> I'd say thank God that at least they made the effort in this case, in the Eichmann case, to do what they should have done. Now, um, about a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, um, three books that were commissioned by the Mossad about the history of their efforts to bring Nazis to justice were made public, and they're available on the Yad Vashem uh, website. And um, they haven't been published. In other words, you can't buy them in the bookstores, right. but they're available and they can be read. And I, I'm probably one of the few people who actually read all 800 pages. And it's actually quite a sad story. Quite a sad story. Uh, the, there's one book about the organizational history of what they call Amal. Amal was the department set up to combat anti-Semitism and to, and to deal with Nazi war criminals. It's short for Amalek, by the way. Mm. 
Okay, that's a relatively short book. Then there's a uh, another book solely on the Mengele case and the efforts made to find Mengele, which, as we all know, were ultimately unsuccessful. Same era, by the way. That was the, the there was suspicion that they'd be able to do it in the same trip of going to get Eichmann. There was right? talk. There was talk. In other words, there was some some talk of perhaps trying to kidnap him as well. Right. He had been in Buenos Aires. He actually went to the German embassy and uh, signed. In other words, he registered under the name Jose Mengele. And but he had already left. He had already fled Buenos Aires and initially to Paraguay and later to Brazil. Um, but. Uh, it turns out that Tzvi Aroni, who's one of the, actually one of the key people in this whole story... Yeah, he's the big figure in the movie. He's the guy who came face-to-face with Mengele in 1962... In, in Buenos Aires? In Brazil. In Brazil. And the conclusion was that it would be impossible under the conditions that of the place that Mengele was hiding to be able to pull off an operation and get it and, you know, and successfully escape. Similar to Eichmann. Sim- not, no, in so, other words, to pull was, off a similar operation. Would no, be- not a similar operation. In other words, one of the options was to kill him, but they felt the 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 sense, at least from what I read. Remember, this is commissioned right. by the Mossad, right. so you have to be a little careful here. And they basically showcase to the world or to the Hebrew-speaking world in right. the meantime of what uh, of what they want you to know, and uh, they couldn't. The feeling was that they wouldn't be able to escape, even if they just shot him and and uh, tried to get out of there. Effie Zuroff is here. Now, we had a situation in the United States very recently. President Trump was lauded for um, spearheading the effort to, I guess, deport. That, right? deport. To deport would yeah. be the word. Yeah. To deport a... Uh, uh, Yaakov Pali. Right. Now, um, our, I assume... I mean, I know that the assumption is that the majority of those uh, involved in war crimes are now gone, right, at this point. No, uh, of course. I mean, obviously. only natural. So will, yeah. will this now be the last or close to the last? <laughs> Not by a long shot. Listen, let me tell you a story. There was a famous case of an Austrian uh, who was a commander of three forced labor camps in Poland, a man named uh, Josef Schwamburger, who was a notorious sadist. Very. I don't know if you know. You remember the movie, The Eighty First Blow? Sure, I remember that movie. Okay, he was one of the, the longest one. movies I've ever seen. He's the person who gave the eighty blows to Michael Goldman, Mickey Gillard, right? Who later served in the Israeli police in the Nazi war crimes unit, and was among the people involved in the Eichmann trial. Reminding our listeners that the eighty first blow oh, was, was that, that nobody, they didn't believe. Nobody believed. That they didn't right. believe him exactly. So. He was uh, the commander of a camp in Przemysl, in Rozvadov, and in Melitz. Three different forced labor camps. He sent Jews to be murdered in Belzitz, and he also murdered Jews in the camp itself. And uh, he ran away to Argentina. He disappeared. And when the whole scandal started about the U.N. War Crimes uh, Commission files being closed, actually, Bibi was the Israeli ambassador UN to the U.N. there. That's one of the things, one of his first projects. So we made up lists of people who had files in those, in the in that archives, who were still at large, and he his name was on that list. And uh, as a result of that list and the renewed interest, and a reward of a quarter of a million marks, which was offered by the Germans, he was caught in Argentina, and he was brought to trial in Germany. He was the first Nazi war criminal put on trial in unified Germany. Okay, 
and someone wrote a book called The Last Nazi. Okay? You know when that book came out? In 1989. <laughs> you know how many Nazis have been prosecuted since then? Plenty. A lot. All right. Nonetheless, we, so, we are getting to a point. No, that's true. <laughs> now, to be honest, perfectly, to be perfectly honest, the reason we're still involved and the reason there, there are still are trials and there are recently three trials in the last few years in, in Germany is because of a very dramatic change in German prosecution policy. Until 10 years ago, if you wanted to prosecute a Nazi war criminal, you had to prove that that person had committed a specific crime against a specific victim, and had done so motivated by racial hatred. And that, that's almost impossible to prove. But because of Damien Yuk, believe it or not... I remember that case. Okay? Because of the Damien Yuk case, and America was desperate to get right. rid of him, right. two, I would say, Hasideo Motolam, righteous Gentiles, who worked at the central office for the clarification of Nazi war crimes in Ludwigsburg, near Stuttgart, came up with a strategy that enabled his prosecution. And they basically said as follows. One was Thomas Walter, the other one was Kirsten Getze. They both worked as prosecutors in Ludwigsburg, which was the central German federal agency for prosecuting Nazis. Even though they can't prosecute. They start the cases, then they hand them over to local prosecutors in the areas where the people, where the suspects live. So they said the following. Since the primary purpose of the death camps was the mass murder of innocent civilians, any person who served there can be prosecuted successfully, not for murder, but for accessory to murder. Mm -hmm. Punishment for which is 5 to 15 years in German law. And that was the basis for the Demian, for the Demian, Yuk, uh, for the Demian Yuk, uh prosecution, which was successful. Began in October 2009, completed in May 2011. Once he was uh, convicted... The Germans started looking all over for anyone who had served in a death camp, but also anyone, apparently also anyone who had served in the Einsatzgruppen. I, I met with the previous head of the central office in the summer of 2011, and I said to them, listen, you know, your logic can also apply to the Einsatzgruppen. So they said, oh, we know that, and we're operating on that, on that basis. But what happened was, though, as time went by, since 2011, there were periodic announcements by the Germans. They had found X number of people from Auschwitz, X number of people from Majdanek, not a word about a single person from the Einsatzgruppe. So what I did was, in, in the summer of 2014, I had in my archives, I had the names and dates of birth of 1,069 members of the Einsatzgruppe. That's, at that time, we thought it was about a third, a little more than a third of those who had served there. Apparently, that's not the case. There's more than that. But in any event, I made a list of the people born 1920 or later. 80 people, 76 men, 4 women. And that list was given into the German uh, ministers of justice, Heiko Maas actually, he's today the foreign minister of Germany, and to Thomas de Mazier, who's the minister of the interior. Now, why? I have to explain, why couldn't I tell the Germans which of these people are alive? Right. Because of something called Datenschutz. Datenschutz is data protection. And I jokingly call it the Heiliger Datenschutz in Germany. In other words, this is like a holy concept. Now, why is it a holy concept? Because of the Holocaust. Sure. Because of the Third Reich. Right. Okay, who's benefiting? They don't want anybody from, talking. Who's benefiting from sure. it now? The Nazis. Right. So, in any event, so uh, I gave them the list. 16, 17 months later, they told me that eight people on that list are of interest to them. Okay, 
do you have any more information? In some cases, I had more information. In other cases, I didn't have. And we gave it, we answered. Every so often, I'm writing them, asking them what's going on. No information. Mm-hmm. Words, they like to get information. They like to give information. Right. So basically, what I did was I teamed up with uh, ARD, which is German Channel One, who have a program called Contrast. Contrast in German. In other words, which is uh, the equivalent of 60 Minutes. Right. Magazine I, show. Right. Ex- investigative show. Right. So I gave them the names, and they found and interviewed two of the people whom they found alive and well who had been in Einsatzgruppe C, who were Babi Yar. And then it turns, it turns out that a third one was also alive. In other words, these people are alive and well living in Germany. And now they can be brought to justice. Are so they going to they, be? Listen, that, first of all, I'm the only Jew in the world who prays for the good health of Nazis. <laughs> okay? Uh, that's a very important prayer of mine. Okay? These people... I, because you believe just, it's never too late for justice. No, of course not. Of course not. But the fact that I mean, they have to make it. You right. know what I mean? They got to get if, there. If they croak, that's it. That's the end. We lost them. And right. it's a shame. That was the whole thing with Demyanyuk. Nobody believed he was still alive. No, listen. The Americans knew all along that he was faking. So, for example, you know, I don't know. I was in Munich. I saw the sessions of the trial. Some of them, not all of them, obviously. And, you know, he did everything possible to convince the public that he doesn't have a clue what's going on. Right. No one knows, or very few people know, that at the, that at the end of each of these sessions, it was a completely different person. Gets up from the gurney or from the wheelchair, starts joking around with the people around him. So I always said, you know, if there was an Academy Award for the best performance by a Nazi war criminal in that year, he definitely would have gotten it. What a distinction, huh? Effie Zurov's here. <laughs> Nazi hunter works at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Uh, all right, a couple of things. Um, I mean, I just mentioned, you know, it's never too late for justice. Uh, but obviously certain people in the state of Israel, especially during the early years of the state of Israel, had an attitude. I, I mean, it's depicted in the movie you just alluded to when we were discussing Eichmann and Mengele. Had an attitude that, you know, enough is enough. World War II is behind us. Mm. And we must continue forward building this state. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not asking whether that attitude is justified or not, but do you understand that attitude? Especially when we do know that in all of our families, there are many, many older people that we grew up with who wanted nothing to do with memories of that era and certainly wanted to be behind them. What do you say to that? I say to that that the survivors had the privilege of putting it behind them. We don't think that about the the Nazis. The victims did not. And uh, in that respect, there's no excuse or explanation to justify ignoring Nazi war criminals and letting them live their lives in peace and tranquility. And yet officials of the state of Israel believe that, felt that, that it was justified. Listen, you, could ask the same que- you can ask that same question, although it's, it's very different in certain respects, about the reparations. Right. Okay, so this is, you know... Uh, Which many grandma- grandmothers had to be convinced to take because of the... Right, right. and there are people who didn't take it. In right. principle, they didn't take it. And uh, there were people like Shalansky who walked uh, into the Knesset with a bomb. Right. <laughs> Not that he wanted to use it, but... Uh, <laughs> right. No, but listen, listen. The, th- the same thing, this brings me very naturally into the next next subject, which is the whole issue of Holocaust distortion today in Eastern Europe. Right. Where Israel, well, in, in the whole world. But. No, 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 no. We're talking about a specific phenomenon in Eastern, post-communist Eastern Europe where they don't deny that the Shoah took place. They simply are trying to do 
couple of things. One is to hide their own participation, participation of their own people. Now, you have to understand that only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis involve participation in systematic mass murder. Vichy police did not kill the French Jews. Right. They helped kill them, right. accessory to murder, right. sent them to be killed. Right. Belgium, Holland, Norway, Greece, Italy, all the same, all similar. right? Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, Belarus, Croatia, the locals were actively involved in the murders. Okay, now, so they want to hide or minimize that involvement, That involvement. number one. Number two, they want to, they're claiming that communist crimes were just as bad as Nazi crimes and that communist crimes are genocide. That's very important because if communist crimes are genocide, that means that Jews committed genocide. Right. Jews working for the KGB, uh-huh. okay? Now, not out of any uh, affiliation or, uh, you know, uh, connection to the Jewish people. These are people who, in a sense, left the community. Independence. Okay, but if Jews committed genocide, how can Jews complain about our people committed genocide? In other words, if everybody's guilty, nobody's guilty. Right. Now, so just to give you one example, one of the things they're trying to do now, they're trying to push, and I'm talking about countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, they're trying to push for a joint Memorial Day for all the victims of totalitarian regimes, which will t- be observed on August 23rd. August 23rd is the day of the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying, you uh, innocent or clueless observer think that Nazi Germany bears the sole responsibility for 50 million people killed in World War II. Well, think again. So in other words, they're comparing the country that conceived, planned, built, and operated the largest mass murder factory in human history, Auschwitz-Birkenau, with the country, with all its flaws, and I don't want to in any way, uh, you know, minimize Holocaust, uh, communist crimes, but the country whose army liberated that mass murder factory and stopped the mass murder. So, and needless to say, if such a plan will be accepted, then it's bye-bye International Holocaust Day, because what do you need it for? You have something more January inclusive. January the UN. January 27th, you know. You have it more inclusive, more victims, more people will be happy. I mean, you can't have endless Memorial Days, Right. So th- this is a very serious thing, and I'm very sad and frustrated to say that Israel has ignored this phenomenon because of political, uh, economic, security interests. And it's a real shame because, as my father, my late father used to always point out, as we know, this was a crime against Jewish people. I, others right. others were killed, right. but this no, was specifically listen, a crime the, against the Jewish people. The point is, why did the Shoah take place to the scope that it did? Because the Jewish people didn't have a country right. whose priority was to save Jews, right? right? Nowhere to go. Now, today we have a country, okay? Right. And that country sees itself... First of all, as the defender of the Jewish people. Second of all, as the heir of the victims. So, Mimanovshach, you know, this is something that we that we have to do, and we're not doing it. Effie Zoroff is here. I could speak to you all day. There's two philosophical questions I must get to. One second. I have to say one thing. Bibi was just in, in Lithuania. Right. On a state visit. Right. And it wasn't bad enough that he didn't call them out on being basically the locomotive pulling this double genocide theory and, and, and the Holocaust distortion. He praised them for the way they're commemorating the Shoah. So think how the people here in Israel, the survivors, people like me who are fighting tooth and nail against the Lithuanians and against the lies, feel when something like that happens. It's terrible, terribly frustrating. Philosophical question number one. Okay. And I believe me, I understand your frustration. All of our frustration should be with that. Is there any difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? No. 
They're Anti-Zionism is a new form of anti-Semitism. In other words, anti-Semitism exists for hundreds of years. It is it was adopted. It, it was adopted different forms. Okay. In other words, today, it, hatred of the Jew because he has a different religion and different language and he has a different holidays is out because of the Shoah. Okay. That's passe. So what are you going to do? And if you hate a Jew, you have to find a new way to hate a Jew. And this and new they way, and they and they did. Finally. Yeah. I don't know if you have a personal opinion on this issue, but if you do, I'm very curious what it is. Um, Many students, in fact, many students in this country, spend part of their time away from the U.S. while they're visiting Israel, going to Europe, visit concentration camps, etc., etc. There are people, especially those in the prior generation, who did not like the fact and still don't like the fact that we, as a Jewish community, are supporting financially efforts in Poland, etc. Your opinion? Definitely, I'm in favor of the trips, 100%. The sad part of the trips is that people have to go to Poland to strengthen their Jewish identity. That's the sad part. But it's very effective. And you see conclusively that those trips help strengthen Jewish identity, help in the fight against assimilation, against intermarriage. That's That's the real challenge now. Because we're very strong when we're being attacked and we're being threatened to be killed. Right. Then our Jewish identity skyrockets. But in times of peace and in Listen, times of comfort... Judaism, Jewish identity shouldn't be built around suffering and sorrows, okay? But they're definitely a part of who we are and, and our identity. And uh, this, this is one of the things, one of the tools that is proven to be very, very effective. I wouldn't cancel them at all. I would add that every effort is made to limit the financial investment or, you know, spending right. in these countries. And and they try and bring the food from Israel and all sorts of other things. So, Bemet, it's not, it's, I wouldn't under any circumstances, you know what, listen, let me tell you something. I spent the last 10 years of my Milouin, of my army service, I was uh, in the educational corps, okay? And I used to serve like 30, 30, 40 days a year giving lectures all over Israel to the soldiers. And I spoke to all, every type of soldier imaginable. The most intelligent, the least intelligent. The most educated, the least in- educated. Ashkenazim, Sfaradim, you know, Mesartim, Datim, Chilonim, everything. And I, I was pleasantly surprised by two things. One is that the kids, the soldiers, knew a lot more than I thought. They knew a lot. And the second thing was that there was tremendous empathy across the board. didn't matter, Sfaradim, Ashkenazim, Datim, Chilonim, Mesotim, whatever, with the victims of the Shoah and the subject. And the reason for that is, number one, that they made the subject of the Shoah a obligatory for Bagrut and the trips to Poland. Proof positive. Okay. How many years of living in Israel? 48. <laughs> oh, wow. That's quite a stretch of time. And are you still going to be uh, hunting Nazis? Listen, we have a project right now, okay? After we successfully found these three people living in Germany right. who were in Einsatz Gruppe C, who were at Babiar, okay? And as a star of the show, I know that the information I had in my files, in my archives, which was created for a completely different reason, by the way, but that's another story, is only a small part of the information. In other words, I had... 
I had 1,200, no, actually, let's say 1,300 names. And in the 1,069 cases, I had dates of birth as well. Okay, so those 1,069, I originally thought was more than one-third. But after consulting with experts on the Einstein's group, and we realized that the number was actually much higher. And right now, as we speak, we have researchers going through the archives to try and find as many names and dates of birth as possible with the hope of finding other such people that can be brought to justice. Listen, the minute any of these people is brought to justice, by the way, November 6th, there's a trial opening in Munster of a guard in Stutthof. Okay, we found 20 survivors for them, most of them living in Israel. Wow. And um, the minute that happens, all these people start making in their pants, you'll excuse me. Okay, in other words, they don't know when the knock on the door is going to come, if it's going to come. And their pleasant, relatively pleasant, tranquil, uh, golden years turn very black, which is exactly the way it should be. Right. Effie Zoroff, a real <laughs> honor to speak to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Collect the vote. An amazing journey to Jerusalem, and this is one of the reasons why. I get to speak to people like Effie Zoroff, who's the head of Israel's office of the Wiesenthal Center. We have more coming up. You are listening to an amazing and incredible Tuesday morning edition at JM in the AM.